people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Um, you know, as usual, I think I'm going to just just not talk about presidential election stuff. Every week I think, okay, this is the bottom of the barrel. we got to go up from here. And every week the candidates prove me wrong. So uh, I'll just let all the other radio go hosts talk about that stuff. And uh, I'm not going to waste any time about uh, the dumbness of that. I do want to talk about it. I saw an interesting thing, and it kind of caught my eye because I'm a math guy. I love mathematics. Have uh, I was a Michigan math scholar. So uh, what they did is they come into the school and they test us, and they give us this, this really, really hard uh, mathematics exam, and then they score you, and then they tell you where you fall in the state. And I was in the top... I don't know, 1%, 2% in the state on the test. And I get this little certificate that says, congratulations, you're a Michigan math scholar. There's no check in the envelope that I found, by the way, and uh, didn't help me in college as far as scholarships or anything like that. But uh, to this day, I still have that certificate somewhere. I don't know where it's at. But I love math. And I saw an article this week, and it was kind of spread over several websites that uh, uh, I, I generally read. And it talked about this one uh, New York professor, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Hacker. Um, he's a, formerly a professor from Cornell, nice school in New York, and Queens College, another nice school. Uh, he's in his 80s now, so he, I, I'm sure he's retired, but uh, still doing some writing and, and that kind of stuff. But, you know, he, he makes the statement that one out of five Americans don't graduate from high school. And this is one of the worst records in the developed world. Okay, so 20% of the kids going to high school don't graduate. Now, his his thought is the chief academic reason is that they fail ninth grade algebra ninth grade algebra is the reason we have a 20 percent dropout rate in high school so naturally his solution is let's don't teach algebra anymore that way kids won't fail algebra to me that's like saying um you know what let's make uh Let's make selling cocaine legal, and then we'll have fewer arrests for people selling cocaine. Makes sense, doesn't it? So he says that uh, he also claims that uh, only 5%, 5% of the occupations out there, um, maybe even less, require algebra or any other sort of advanced math. 
So instead of learning how to solve rudimentary equations, Hacker argues American high schoolers should be presented with a math curriculum concentrating on statistics and number sense. Now, what the heck is number sense? Well, I looked it up. Number sense is the kind of the new academic buzzword for the ability to estimate and compare numbers. I don't know what that means, but, I mean, I understand the relationship between numbers and, and it's the relationships are important. In fact, that's what algebra is, is ratios and relationships between different numbers. Yeah, it's a lot of equations, a lot of advanced math. But the thing is, what it boils down to is, yeah, we don't need math as much as we used to because we have computers. And computers do all the mathematics for us. We don't have to calculate anything anymore. Now, I'm old enough to have the attitude that I don't trust technology. Don't trust it. And if a computer on my desk kicks out a report that I asked for it, I look at the report and see if it's right or not. Now, one of my assistants for years, eh, not for years, I'm sorry, for months, kept giving me reports, and I'd immediately hand them back to her and tell her they were wrong. Go fix them. And she got very frustrated with me because she couldn't understand how I could determine that so quickly. Just a matter of seconds, I could tell her a report was wrong. Well, being a math guy, I can look at a page full of numbers and tell you whether the numbers carry the right relationship with each other or not. I couldn't tell you how they're wrong, but I can tell you that they're wrong. Given a little bit of time, then I can figure out how they're wrong. But I see numbers in a different way, and I can tell you whether the report's right or wrong. So I don't trust the computer. You've heard the old, the old saying that garbage in, garbage out. Well, if you don't test it, how do you know you're getting garbage out? And if you don't know you're getting garbage out, you don't know the garbage is going in. So it's very critical to understand this. And the fact that, that someone wants to eliminate algebra in high school just to get higher graduation rates is silly. Makes us more dependent on computers and less able to determine when computers are correct or not. So I, I, I dug deep into um, this guy's thought process, into the article he, he wrote and that kind of stuff. And uh, most educators agree with this guy. Most educators don't want to um, uh, teach algebra. So the, uh, the number of kids dropping out of college because algebra is too hard uh, is estimated between 60 and 80% of students who drop out do so because the math requirements are too hard. Okay, this is where hopes and aspirations go to, die, go to die, this one guy said. He told the Associated Press, they're in college to try to make a better life for themselves, and they're stopped by mathematics. Well, let me help you. The whole world operates on mathematics. Everything is math. Everything is math. And you've seen it. I've seen it. You go to a store. You buy something. 
the kid can't make change. Eh, let me rephrase that. The adult behind the counter can't make change. If the cash register didn't calculate the change for them, they wouldn't be able to give you the correct change very easily or very quickly. So math is important. The fact that they want to eliminate it kind of coincides. Remember a couple of weeks ago, there's a trend in, in universities to no longer accept uh, or rely on ACTs or SAT scores. So colleges and high schools are dumbing down our students to, I don't know what for re- what reason, to make them feel better about themselves, to, to what? Because they're just going to be dumber. Dan Luskin, he calls it a conspiracy to keep you poor and stupid. What it does is keep you dependent on someone or something else. It's amazing how many people can't do just simple math, arithmetic in their head. They have to have a a calculator. They got a calculator on their phone. They got a calculator on their watch. Um, they, they can't do simple mathematics. And it, it just amazes me because the computers that we're dependent on use mathematics and use advanced mathematics. Somebody's got to program these computers. If we're going to program our computers by using computers to program them, then the machines truly have taken over. I'm truly convinced that there's no computer in the world, nor will there be for a long, long time. There will be someday. But right now, there's no computer that compares to the capability of your own brain. Whether you use it or not, different story. But there's no computer as sophisticated that has the ability to do what your brain does. So... Eliminating algebra, um, not an option. I, I, I think that would be very, very detrimental to our economy, detrimental to us individually, and truly keep people poor and stupid. If they can't get it, then we need to have teachers that can change their teaching methodology so that people do get it. It's not that tough. You just have to think and be able to rationally reason through what mathematics are. Coming up next, I'm going to spend a little time talking about a fourth branch of government. Yes, you heard that right. I know there's only three, but we have a shadow branch that uh, I'm going to talk about next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. I surfing around as I always do and uh, <clears throat> reading all different kinds of, of uh, sites. I read three, four newspapers a day, you know, probably a dozen magazines a month, that kind of stuff to keep up. 
And I came across this article by A. Barton Hinkle on Reason.com. Reason.com. And he talked about something uh, that I've talked about many, many times before, as many other people have. But he put it in a context that really resonated with me. And that is uh, what we've done is created in the country a fourth branch of government. Now, the, traditionally, the way the country was founded, the Constitution, we have three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. And there's a series of checks and balances in the Constitution so that no one branch has more power uh, without confirmation of the other branches. Now, we've seen how presidents, not just President Obama, okay, how many presidents have used executive orders to get their way. Uh, they, they, they use an executive order to make law, and it's up to Congress to, to uh, get rid of that or, or rescind it or whatever the term is. But uh, in recent administrations, Bush and particularly President Obama, they, they, they've kind of taken the executive order to the, the nth degree. Well, in addition to this, government agencies are writing law. And this goes back a ways. This goes back to President Reagan, 1984, on a Supreme Court case against Chevron. And uh, President Reagan gave um, Chevron some um, uh, relaxed air quality regulations. And the Natural Resources Defense Council and the EPA took that to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court essentially sided with the EPA. But it did so in a, a way that instead of saying the EPA is wrong or right, the high court deferred to the agency. It's called judicial modesty. Well, when you gave the EPA that kind of modesty, shall we say, they took it to... Um, mean that they could write their own rules and regulations. So the fourth branch of government contains legislative, executive, and judicial components, but relatively little direct public influence. Congress last year passed 138 laws. Federal agencies wrote 2,926 rules. Federal judges conduct about 95,000 trials a year. Federal agencies conduct nearly a million trials a year. You put that all together, and you've got a situation where one branch of government, essentially the executive branch, is um, having the powers, giving itself the powers of the other two branches. And this is what he means by the fourth branch. We've created a hybrid kind of branch by these agencies. Now, an agency, any government uh, situation that has three letters in its name. So EPA, FBI, Department of Education, uh, HUD, all of these. Okay. All of these agencies now with Dodd-Frank legislation passing, uh, there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of new rules and laws being set up by that legislation has nothing to do with Congress. 
nothing to do. Congress, by Constitution, is supposed to be the only organization to make law. And then the president signs it into law or he vetoes it, and it goes back to Congress again. Congress can override that veto, but only under certain circumstances, and generally that is two-thirds majority vote. These agencies are creating laws with no public recourse, no public influence. Dodd-Frank legislation uh, is funded through the Federal Reserve. It's not funded through Congress. Congress can't even cut off money to Dodd-Frank legislation. The guy can't be fired. The head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau cannot be fired, not by the president, not by Congress, unless there is serious malfeasance. So he can't even be replaced until his term is up, and then the next president can can appoint a new person uh, there. But he can't be fired. No, no budget constraints. They spent $215 million redoing their offices when the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was asked by a member of Congress how you can justify $215 million for remodeling. His answer, now listen to this, his answer, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's essentially the same, is what's it to you? What's it to you? It's not in your budget. It comes out of the Fed. And I don't have to answer to you. So we're getting more and more. And look at what happened in the EPA recently. They took navigable out of their description, navigable water, so they can regulate any water on any land. Congress shot that down. EPA implemented it anyway. So that's our fourth branch. It's a shadow branch. It's a hybrid branch. And we have very little control over it we need to be aware of it and that's why i brought it up and we need to do something about it which is another reason i brought it up coming up next kyle hoffman from main street growth project will be uh, uh joining me i interviewed him at cpac a couple weeks ago and uh he's going to join me next gary rathbun an economy of one Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're speaking now with Kyle S. Hoffman. He's the executive director of Main Street Growth Project. Kyle, uh, thanks for spending a little time with us today. Great to be here. You know, uh, my producer gave me some information about you and some of the, the work you've done. And, and all she said to me was Dodd-Frank legislation. And... That has been a bane to my existence, I can't tell you. You and millions of others. You know, I mean, people complain about Obamacare being Mm -hmm. 2,000 pages long and that kind of stuff. Dodd-Frank, I think, is actually worse for this country than Obamacare is. I know a lot of people that feel that way. Uh, There's evidence to suggest that. What I would say is, you know, this country has a history when there's a disaster of pressure to do something, Mm -hmm. right, after 9-11 attacks, et cetera. And Dodd-Frank's the big one. There are other things we can get into, but... Communities around the country who need jobs, individuals who need jobs, main streets with empty storefronts, 
some of that goes back to bad financial regulation uh, that you know, we were told with Dodd-Frank's case was supposed mm-hmm. to be about Wall Street and too big to fail. Right. Meanwhile, little banks you've never heard of that have four ATM machines are getting absolutely hammered, getting acquired by the big guys, mm-hmm. and getting acquired cheaper because of the massive paperwork burden on institutions that had nothing to do with the crisis. Well, and then my uh, main line of work is registered investment advisor, private wealth consultants. We manage money for people. And my compliance budget has tripled since Dodd-Frank legislation. Just trying to learn the rules and try to have some semblance of following the rules. But it's just so massive that there's no way anybody can be 100% in compliance, I don't think, with Dodd-Frank. So when you said bane of your existence, that's what you're getting at? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and the sad part is you're doing the right things. You are uh, working. You Mm -hmm. have a job. You probably provide employment to others. You want to help people with their finances, which is something this country sure needs. And what do you get in return from that from your government? A very unthoughtful deluge of regulations. Mm -hmm. And always the big guys can always handle it better. It's almost as if uh, things like Dodd-Frank were there to help the big guy. If you are a billionaire, you're going to have great investment service, white glove service. Guy's going to answer your call in one ring. Right. Or if you're someone who serves that type of person, you know, a private wealth group at one of the big uh, elite institutions, right. you're fine, too. you got people for this. Well, and a little bit of conspiracy in me says that part of the rationale behind this for the government is to get rid of all the little guys. It's a lot easier to coerce five or ten big banks that run 90% of the stuff in this country. It's real easy to, for the government to, to get in bed with them than it is with 25,000 little banks oh, in yeah. this country. And other industries as well. Right. You know, I think some people in government look with envy upon some of the countries in Western Europe where there's a handful of uh, industries in each who always need help with the government. They're in bed with each other, regardless of which party's in power, mm-hmm. whether it's airlines or media, et cetera. You know, this country, our capital, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. we're specifically not supposed to have a London or Paris where the national political capital is also the center of commerce. Right. We're specifically not supposed to. <laughs> right. That's right. And, you know, the big CEOs, true, they haven't all moved to Washington. Their lobbyists have. Well, that, that's it. You drive around the Beltway. I mean, I come here all the time. And you drive around the Beltway and you see all these huge, huge buildings that represent all these corporations. And, yeah. And, and uh, non-revenue producing employees. Yeah. Who come yeah. here. And, and I know these folks and they do good work and it's not the company's fault. Remember, Bill Gates used to say, you know, I never met a government official until he was like 38, right? And he started his company, I think, 19. Yeah. That's how it should be. Yeah. You mentioned about trying to coerce. You know, American capitalism is supposed to be uh, who's up and who's down changes all the time. Right. It's supposed to be changing constant innovation. And that is the only way they compete around the world because they face that. Yeah. I mean, free market capitalism where I have the freedom to succeed to my wildest dreams, but I also have the freedom to fail. And no safety net. I fail. I fail. Can and I ma- get up and yeah. do it again? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the local banks, they exist. Their value added is not because they give you global reach. Mm-hmm. They know your local community. They know the industries, whether it's oil and gas or whether it's the fishing industry. They know the names of the equipment and the leasing terms and the cycles. That's their value added. Plus, mm-hmm. they probably pick up your phone call. Well, and, and you're exactly right. And one of the things I was reading about, and I know personally, uh, without going into a lot of detail, but I know personally that small banks community banks 
they are being pretty much regulated out of business. Yeah. They, they keep changing the, the rules on their, their loan loss reserves and their tier one capital and, and all this kind of stuff. And my goodness, they can't make a profit because they're spending it all on regulation. And, you know, some of them might have gone out of business anyway. There were some state bank uh, rules that changed a while back. But they should be able to succeed on their own merits mm-hmm. or not succeed and not have uh, a, one of the huge banks gobble them up because the people who ran the small bank just didn't want to deal with it anymore. It wasn't right. enjoyable. They're afraid of going awry. You try to follow all those regulations, there's always a piece you know, in your mind. It's like doing your taxes. You're worried you're going to yeah. mess it up, and your life will become uh, a nightmare. Well, and, it, yeah. it, you know, you give these guys the authority to, to say no, and they tend to exercise yeah. that authority. And, I'm trying to tell Americans who they may be upset with Wall Street, too big to fail, absolute problem. Many of them do not realize that their local community, their local banks, their checking account got hit by what was supposed to be about Wall Street. Mm-hmm. These towns are hurting, and it's only helping lawyers, lobbyists, and Washington, D.C. area. Yeah, and compliance officers. Oh, you bet. Again, <laughs> non-revenue producing employees. Non-revenue producers, that's right. You're with the Main Street Growth Project. Tell us a little bit about that organization and what you do and, and uh, how our people can get involved in that. Yeah, we're an advocacy group. Uh, so I've had experience uh, both on the in the for-profit sector uh, and at a think tank, right, which is can't do advocacy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at MainStreetGrowth.com, MainST for street, MainSTGrowth.com, uh, and at MainStreetGrowth on Twitter, um, we want people to get involved. The main thing the average person can do is talk to their local legislator, right, and say there are common sense reforms you can do. This is not giving Wall Street a free hand that can allow the small business to succeed, somebody who wants to work for them. Uh, wants to work for a small business, somebody who wants to be a customer. My town has vacant storefronts. Call, especially people on Senate Banking Committee, right? Uh, you know, you have Heidi Hetkamp, you have people on the, there are Democrats who want to do a lot of good work on this. They can get involved in talking to their legislator, tell them Main Street Girls Senate what they want, uh, to say, why are you hammering our small banks and small business, more importantly, mm-hmm. with stuff that was not about them? They are not threats to the global financial system. They're not too big to fail. You shouldn't be too small to succeed either. Right. Right. And we have lots of examples, mountains of regulation that people would not believe are on small banks, making people with good credit not be able to get a mortgage right. or a small business loan. We have a data on this. The small banks haven't. The small loans have not recovered. The big ones have. Right. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this, these statistics as much as I have, that 85%, 90% of all new jobs created are created in small companies. Yeah, and particularly new ones. And new new ones, ones are almost always small. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I've always made the joke, not always made the joke, I've made the joke a lot recently that, you know, uh, under President Obama, GM got bailed out and, and mm-hmm. bondholders got binked yeah. over and that kind of stuff. And I, in my little company, have created more jobs in the last four years than General Motors has. Well, thank you for you for doing your part, you first know, of all. I mean, right. but if all I had to do was create one, yeah, and I've done right. more than GM has, you, and, know, you know, and they're not bailing me out. Uh, yeah, business, but uh, who needs a job, right? Somebody who is jobless. Who right. is seeking jobs? Young people seeking their first job. Mm-hmm. Uh, recent immigrants. And somebody returning to the workforce. Also, moms going back to work, maybe. Sure. Right? Um, Second so, careers. That's right. You know, that kind of stuff. That's who needs them. You and I have jobs right now, Knockwood, so we're all right. But the groups we just mentioned, that's who gets hammered by this regulation. Mm-hmm. So if your goal was, I want to help uh, the wealthiest law firms, because that's who banks hire. I want to help lobbyists. I want to help the D.C. economy. 
I want to force power and influence to Washington, D.C., and I want to hurt small towns, hurt uh, immigrants disproportionately, hurt that mom going back to work, then by all means, keep going down this path of centralizing power in D.C. Uh, if you think we're supposed to be a shining city on a hill, which we can only happen if the newcomers, people we just mentioned, mm -hmm. have a shot. Otherwise, right. it's not good, right? Right. You know, on this show, we don't get into really talking about the different candidates or endorsing anybody or anything like that. But what do you think the next president, what do you, what do you think one of their top jobs needs to be in this area to help small businesses, small banks? I mean, what, what do you look for? in the candidates' dialogue or narrative, if you will, to help with this area. I mean, I read a recent article around you that, you know, Bernie Sanders is kind of the antithesis of this. Yeah, he's right. Uh, things are rigged. Uh, remember we just said that uh, the big bank has an opportunity to buy the little one, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and they get to buy it cheaper oh, because yeah. of that mountain of regulation, sure. right? Uh, you might not want to be a customer of a big bank. You can be if you want to. I've been one. I'm not here to knock the... the big banks but mm -hmm. um so bernie sanders brings these issues up certainly so i'll credit him for that but for example checking accounts that's something that hits almost everybody either you have one or you don't you're the unbanked right right sometimes uh poorer folks don't have regular employment bernie sanders voted dodd frank Act, which had the durbin amendment in it. that uh made free checking go away it drastically dropped it right mm -hmm. uh, for the larger institutions and they didn't give us free checking because we were good looking they gave us free checking because they wanted our deposits and we used other things right that made rewards programs on debit cards reduced. Uh, minimum balances go up. Direct deposit requirements stricter, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody doesn't have regular employment, uh, maybe doesn't want to get nailed with the fee, and they might instead want to go to a check cash place. Right. Is it really the goal of this legislation to make somebody uh, give money to a check cash place because they don't want, can't use a regular bank? Right. Is that really the goal? Well, that's part of what's happened. And just the fees. My new account, I got to have 1500 minimum balance. Not everybody mm -hmm. can hit that. Otherwise, I get nailed with a fee. And once again, the biggest guys do fine. Right. You either got the platinum checking account or you got other things. But, you know, when I was a kid, you could take a roll of quarters and go in and get free checking forever, you know, with some right. stipulations. And you never right. paid a dollar unless you, you know, bounced a check or whatever. But it's hitting all those folks. Uh, Bernie Sanders complained about ATM fees. I don't like paying them either. But no one who was for the Durban Amendment that, that was price-fixing, limited debit charge, uh, which didn't help the consumer when they got rid of it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, can complain about ATM fees or any other banking fees, right? Right. It's like a pillow when you push one side, another part goes up. Right. Well, when you artificially take revenue away, uh, and they are for-profit places, what I'm afraid of is they're going to look at the unbanked or small businesses not being able to get loans and say, you know what we need is a huge government solution. Right. Again, making someone in D.C. more powerful, giving them a big job title, right? trying to solve the problem they caused in the first place. Why don't we see what if a normal lender can lend to a normal business, someone who knows their community? Yeah. Why don't we see if that works first? Well, I mean, you know, a politician by nature, by nature, it, it can't enter his head to do nothing. You know, if you just leave business alone, it will reach an equilibrium. And so many of these politicians, like you said, they don't understand the consequences. You know, you, you eliminate the ATM fees or, or right. regulate the ATM fees. You regulate the checking. Well, it has a consequence somewhere. That's right. Uh, Something else happens. Money doesn't come from the sky. That's right. Services, and somebody else gets hurt, right? It, it's it's whack-a-mole sometimes. Yeah, right? exactly. And if you don't know that when you press that pillow or that balloon that it's going to change the rest of it, if you don't know that, you're never, ever going to solve the problem. That's right. Right? You can't. And, you know, there, there are people in this life that always put themselves in the med middle of everything. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just their nature. So, you know what this situation needs? It needs some more me. 
Yeah. Right? <laughs> we know people like that. Right. Sometimes. And, That's a great line. And, and, and I'm not, you know, anti-government. My dad was federal government 35 years. But the notion of bring everything back to Washington. Yeah. Problem dot, 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 someone in D.C. Contact us. Bernie Sanders yeah. says he wanted to have small businesses borrow directly from the Central Bank, the Federal Reserve. Right. Set aside how convoluted that is. You're a recent immigrant. Maybe your English isn't that good. You have to know that there's the Fed, that they have this program, a website. Not everything has to point back to Washington. Right. A lot of communities did business for a long time. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with groups like the SBA, uh, you know, organizations like the SBA to give loans. But we can make this work uh, if we allow these business models. And it always hits the little guy the hardest. The, why are diners closing in, in small towns so that D.C. can have another steakhouse? Right. Right? Is that really what we want? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm a big advocate on small business. I'm a small business. I own several small businesses. And that's where the jobs are created. It's where the uniqueness is created. It's where the service is created. Everything comes from the small business. And quite honestly, when my dad died 20 years ago, I did my family history all the way back to 1792 when John and Martha came over here. Right. And everything I read talks about different family members starting different businesses. They did this. They own saloons. They own boarding houses. They, they, everything, the whole country was built on a small business of going out, providing something, and getting paid for it. Yeah. And, and uh, hiring others. And hiring others. could only succeed because they provided a good or service somebody else wanted. Uh, that's right. And, and this country has always been about that. Uh, people can always do well. I mean, recent immigrants, the ones we have now, still want what everybody, what our ancestors wanted. Sure. They want a fair shot. They did not come here hoping against hope when they got here for forced redistribution of wealth. Right. They wanted a fair shot because they didn't get one at home. Yeah, we, we need equal opportunity, not equal outcomes. That's absolutely right. And you how know. could you get out of your paperwork nightmare that you have in your business? You could either stop doing it or you could become part of a big organization to right. spread that uh, burden around, right? right? Neither one of those is good for your clients your employees well and quite honestly just final point the that's how the irs came out with payroll deduction taxes yeah they don't want to deal with 200 300 million taxpayers and not having all that money collected so they turned all us business owners mm -hmm. into irs agents to same, collect for them a lot of firms like especially financial institutions you're afraid of your regulator Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I'm worried about anybody who has the power to sign off on my living. Yep. I'm a little wary of them. How about you get a letter in the mail for, you know, IRS, you owe 300 bucks, and you don't think it's right. You may, you know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't have to pay it. But what do your accountants say? You know, if you can even afford one. You know what they'll yeah. say? Pay, pay the 300. Yeah. Because it's not worth it. Cheap money to make them go away. Right? I'll pay 300 bucks and I'll have to deal with this, right? That's and it. And that's a, take that and put it across regulation. We deal with that every day, you know? We've been speaking with Kyle S. Hoffman from the Main Street Growth Project. Kyle, thank you so much for your time. And my producer has your information. We're going to call you again and, and chat a little more when we have some more time. I would love to. Anytime you want to have me on, you guys are doing great work. Thank you. Thank you. Up next, you think the uh, Supreme Court of the uh, United States is uh, uh, useless now that it's 4-4? I'm going to prove to you it's not. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, Justice Scalia passed away. Uh, unexpectedly, and, and people were wringing their hands, 
all over the country for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, he was a conservative justice. And two, President Obama was going to nominate somebody, and obviously that person would not be conservative. And we talked about that a little bit, the fact that we are even having that discussion that we need a conservative justice to replace Scalia or we're going to we're going to lose our Second Amendment right. We're going to lose this. We're going to lose that. And I was of the mind that President Obama should nominate somebody and Senate should question that person and consider him. Now, given who he's nominated, I think Congress or the Senate should probably vote him down. But the fact is they came out and said, nope, we're not even going to talk about it. We're not going to vote on any, anybody. It's dead on arrival. Uh, lame duck president. We're going to let the people decide, blah, 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 blah. Okay. And I disagree with that. I, I think that the uh, Constitution is pretty clear that uh, the president shall nominate and the Senate shall uh, have hearings and discuss. Anyway, that being said, this week we had a real victory uh, out of the Supreme Court. Victory for private property rights. It's thing that near dear to my heart that I think about all the time. It's very important. The Supreme Court said in a 5-3 vote in Luis versus United States, the Supreme Court held that the government's efforts to freeze non-tainted assets of a criminal defendant before trial violated the defendant's constitutional rights. The Sixth Amendment says that he has, a person has the right to use uh, her own innocent property to pay for a reasonable uh, uh, pay a reasonable fee for the assistance of counsel. Now, what this involved is is a doctor down in Florida that's accused of defrauding Medicare of about forty million dollars. Well, she had about fifteen million dollars that was in no way connected to any type of alleged criminal activity. Well, the government froze all that, essentially froze every penny he had, so she couldn't even hire an attorney. So they sued, and the Supreme Court upheld the Constitution and forced the government to unfreeze the assets. So the government cannot deny Luis's right to be represented by a qualified attorney whom she chooses and can afford. Now, what's interesting is it wasn't conservatives and liberals on the court. It was a mixed bag. And uh, there was some uh, liberals for it, some against it, some conservatives for it, some conservatives against it. So the system works still. I'm not making any comment about defrauding Medicare for $40 million. I don't know the case, don't know anything about it, don't care. I care about the fact that the Sixth Amendment was upheld and private property was protected. And you and I have talked a lot about civil asset forfeiture. I hope this drains over into it. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 